topic of fear of the Lord is a bit misleading because the word fear today has different meanings than what it had back in the um, 17, 1800s when the um, original King James was done. But the The understanding of the word fear is important in this teaching, so let's work out a wee bit. There's a natural fear. Uh, if you um, are out in the bush and a bear shows up, there's a fear that says you better get out of here. That's a good fear, all right? So, But there's a demonic fear that the Bible talks about, Second Timothy 1.7. It says, God has not given us the spirit of fear, and that's only inspired by by um, uh, Satan's attacks on us to bring fear. First John 4.18, fear has torment. Some of you would agree with that, but that's not the type of fear we're talking about. Number three, there's a religious fear. Uh, where you live in a religious environment, they can't get to heaven without obeying all the rules and regulations. And the confusing thing is most denominations have a different list of rules and regulations, and so we fuss with which one is worse, which one is best. And so there's no answer to that one, except come into a relationship with the Lord, and you don't serve Him because of rules and regulations. You obey Him because of love. We'll talk about that some other time. Number four, there's a fear of God's judgments that Psalm 119 uh, refers to in verse 20. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I'm afraid of your judgments. And the solution to that fear is repentance from sin so that we don't have to um, face the judgment seat of Christ in a negative way. Number five is the fear of man. Proverbs talks about it. Proverbs 29, 25 says the fear of man is a snare. And that um, is when we're intimidated by people, intimidated to the point of uh, being controlled by them sometimes, but it's the wrong kind of fear. You cannot walk in the fear of man and walk in the fear of the Lord at the same time. Jesus said you can only serve one master. You can't serve two. So number six is the fear of the Lord. This is the fear we want to talk about. But it meant in the original languages of mostly Greek, when the New Testament was written, and the Old Testament when it was done in Hebrew, the word fear meant great respect, great awe, and reverence. And so when the Bible was being translated originally, way back King James' time, um, they translated fear, uh, the word reverence and awe and everything that translated fear. Because back then, if, um, if a young um, boy said to someone, I really fear my dad, that meant he revered and honored his dad. If he said it today, the children's services would have the man arrested. So that's the difference in the word fear. So, but we still use the word fear as long as you understand in this context it has to do with reverence, awe, respect, and so on. That's what's important. Because the phrase is used in the King James at least 150 times through Scripture. And so when you come into the newer translation, uh, sometimes they use the word reverence, um, but generally, even the newer translations, they stick to the term, the fear of the Lord, because it's so well known, it's so ingrained, ingrained in our 
uh, conversations, they are teaching that they haven't changed it. So long as we understand it, that's fine. We'll, we'll be looking at a couple of verses that have changed it to reverence, but that's later. So I want to look at why we need the fear of the Lord. And I want to cover a number of different areas. The first one is Isaiah 33, verse 6. If there's a key verse about the fear of the Lord, this would have to be it. Isaiah 33, verse 6. It says, He, now back in Isaiah's time, that would be God. In the New Testament, that would be Jesus. For He will be the stability of our times, a wealth of salvation, wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the is His treasure. I like the New International Version that says that this is the fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. And so what have we got here? It says the fear of the Lord is what will bring us stability in hard times. It doesn't use the word hard there, but we are in hard times and I believe they're getting harder. The fear of the Lord will be a stability to us it will be a wealth of salvation. We're not talking about the initial birth now, the new birth. We're talking about being saved from the enemy's attacks, being saved from those things that would try to destroy us, maybe physical or whatever. Psalm 91 makes it very clear that if we abide in Him, He's going to give us an element of protection. So that's good. The fear of the Lord is also the key to knowledge. Jesus is that treasure. And so there needs to be in our understanding something that, that clicks on that says to me and says to you and in your, in your thought life it should say something like this. I don't believe I can get along without having the fear of the Lord in my life. And as we go through this, I'm trusting that that will be your conclusion. Psalm 25 verse 14 I'm going to read it, just a short part of it, in three different translations. The NIV says, Psalm 25, verse 14, The Lord confides, and I focus on the word, He confides in those who fear Him. Then the New American Standard takes that same verse, and they would say, The secret or the intimacy of the Lord is for those who fear Him. And then the New Revised Standard Version would say, The the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. Now, all of those adjectives are right. All those things really talk to me about the fact that if I walk in the fear of the Lord, there will be an intimacy. There will be a, a, a confiding. He'll confide in me. There will be a friendship that develops. And it's working this way. If I revere and honor God, he wants to come into fellowship with me because of that reverence that I have for Him. So let me, um, this is important to the whole teaching. Let's say, for example, uh, you need a favor for the local judge in your area. And so you go before that judge with your request in hand. Now, there's two possibilities. If that judge has heard that you really respect him, you said good things about him, you realize your chance of finding favor with him is much greater than if he has heard that you don't respect him, 
you spread rumors about him or talked against him, your chances then diminish quite a bit. And so I don't want to compare God to a, to a bad judge or any. He is a good judge. The judge of all the earth, Abraham called him one time. And so we recognize that if I respect and honor him, I believe reaching his heart is going to be much easier when it comes time for me to have a request before him. So as we go through this, I'd like you to kind of keep that picture in the back of your mind that we need we need to show that reverence and that awe so that he can he can turn to Jesus on his right hand side or speak to an angel and say, That person really respects me, I hear their prayer. Now it's interesting. Lot was the guy in Sodom, and God's going to destroy Sodom. It says that Lot was a righteous man, but there's no record that says he feared the Lord. However, Abraham, who was his uncle, it does say of Abraham that he feared the Lord because he's the one that was willing to take the most precious thing he had, his son Isaac, and sacrifice that son because of God's direction for him to do it. Now, we know he didn't do it. God stopped him. The angel said, you don't have to do that. Now that I know you fear the Lord, you don't have to do that. And I conclude from that, first of all, that if I walk in the fear of the Lord, if I have the reverence and awe that that word represents, it's something about the fact that I have put God in the highest place of my life. I fulfill the first commandment that Jesus gave. But the reason why I'm pointing out Lot and Abraham to you the verse before that we read from Psalm 25, the Lord confides in us, the Lord um, uh, shares sacred things with us. When God was, was anxious to tell somebody what he was going to do to Sodom, he didn't go to Lot, who lived in that city. He went to his uncle, who lived out in the plains away from Sodom, and he shared his heart with Abraham. And we don't know for sure, but I suspect the reason why he chose to share it with Abraham instead of sharing it with Lot was because Abraham had gained the, the intimacy and the, the ability to hear secrets from him. Instead, Lot had not. It says in Hebrews, Lot was a righteous man, but he saw troubles him, grieved his spirit. But there wasn't a reason. The, the respect and the awe that God was looking for in order to be so friendly that he could share secrets with him. Proverbs 8.13 says, To fear the Lord is to hate evil. And then Proverbs 16, 6 b says, Through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. And then Psalm 105, verse 11, and then 17 and 18. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. So that's a powerful verse in its own. So great is his love. We go on to 17. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children and those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. 
So those three verses, the first two from Proverbs, the last two from our, uh, Psalm, it is talking about if we have a reverence for God, it will, it will keep us from sin. And, it will, and He'll be able to pour out His love on us because of that respect we have for Him. He loves us, I know, in a general way. But there's a love that poured out on those that will stand in reverence to Him. So let's examine how does the fear of the Lord help to present, prevent us from doing sinful things? My understanding would simply be this. When I was in high school, which has a few bad memories for me, but some good ones too. But to say, the teachers that I didn't like very well, I didn't say I was a good Christian back then, the teachers I didn't like very well, I didn't get excited about their, their the reports that I had to do, the um, homework I had to do, the, um, you know, the things they give you. But the teachers that I did like, I was more anxious to get at it and do a good report so they would, they would be impressed with what I did and so on. You understand these two things? I'm not saying I was right in what I was doing. I'm just using it as an illustration. And so, in my relationship to God, the more I respect and love Him, the more I will want to obey Him. I want to, I want to obey people I respect and love. That's just, children are in a place where you can almost tell how much they love their parents by their level of obedience. John John 14, and even in 15, and then over in 1 John, I haven't counted them, but there must be six or seven times. This is what Jesus saying to his disciples. And the John, and then John recording it in 1 John. He said, I will know whether you love me or not if you're obedient. And he said one place in John 14, that when I see your obedience, and the Father sees that obedience, we will know that, we, that you love us, and then we'll come, and we'll set up housekeeping in you, one translation says. I love that one. If I have the fear of the Lord, it helps to keep me from evil, because I know if I commit a sin, it means that I don't really love them, and if I don't really love them, it means I don't really respect and honor God. And so that's the way I would work, I would say. I'm not going to do that. If the enemy comes knocking at my door, I need to say to the enemy, I'm not interested in that. I don't want to be separated from the one I love. The Bible says, Psalm 66 and Isaiah 59 says, that sin separates us from God he won't hear our prayer because sin has blocked it out. So the fear of the Lord can help to keep us from evil. Therefore, I don't have to have a list of do's and don'ts in order to please God. You see, I can testify that we have a good marriage. My wife does not have a list of do's and don'ts that she has to do to obey me. I've never given her a list. And she doesn't have a list. 
She just knows without a list. She knows without even meditating on it. That if she flirted with some other guy, it's going to affect her relationship. And she doesn't want that. That's the way it is with God. I'm not going to flirt with evil. I'm not going to mess around with evil. Because I don't want my relationship to God to be tainted or harmed in any way. I work too long and hard to get where I am. And I'm not going to jeopardize it. So you can understand the fear of the Lord, that respect and that all that flows, that, that love that flows out of that respect. Temptation becomes my enemy because it's trying to separate me from the one that I love. The fear of the Lord helps us to avoid evil. Let's go on. Hebrews 11:7 talks about Noah obeyed the unusual, facing ridicule. The Bible calls that a holy fear. You remember Noah? He lives out in the desert somewhere, semi-desert at least. God says, no, I want you to build me a boat. And it was a huge boat, more than, I think I remember correctly, more than two football fields long, huge thing. And Noah and his sons got together and they just started building that boat. And the Bible tells us that he did it, not because he had understanding, not because it made sense to him, and... And the neighbor certainly didn't encourage him. He doesn't say what his wife did, but I'm sure she scratched her head a few times. He just went ahead out of fear of God, out of the reverence for him, and start building the boat. And you see, they say, theologians say, I don't know how they figured this out, but they say it probably took at least a hundred years, if not more, to build that boat. And how do you toil at something with no no modern tools like we have today. How do you tell that for a hundred years and keep your heart straight? Neighbors are laughing at you. I would assume that through the whole community there was lots of Noah jokes going on and yet he persisted and God says that's the fear of the Lord. That's a holy thing. So he's doing something really outside the box. Have you heard that term? He's doing something outside of our church-related this is what Christians do, type box. And then we have another, it's Abraham in, X, in Genesis 22. It said, of Abraham, when he was told to sacrifice Isaac, I can hardly imagine his wife's reaction, because this son Isaac is the son of the promise, which was going to have such a large family following him that they descended or down be like the sand of the sea. So what does God tell Abraham to do? Why don't you go kill him? Take him up in the mountain and kill him. Sacrifice Does Abraham get up the next morning? Have a three-day journey, so he'll get started early. Got his servants together to carry the wood and all that stuff in the fire. And they had it out. But it says over in the book, one of Paul's letters said, Moses, oh, pardon me, Abraham worked with that in the night. He made a decision. If this, is the, if this boy is the promise, 
and God must intend to raise them from the dead after our children. Now we know whose stories are their children. And then there's the um, women back in Egypt. At the end of their 400 years, the boys were multiplying. And Pharaoh told the women to kill the boys, but out of a godly fear, they refused to do that. They were midwives, but God blessed them. There's times when we have to disobey government. The Bible tells us to obey. There's times when we don't. Different message. We have Noah, we have Abraham, we have the midwives in Egypt. What's unique about these people? They're unique because God called them to do something that was very unusual. I can hear um, Abraham's eldest saying, Jews just don't do that. We don't do that. If it was happening in your church today, the board would be saying, no, no, that's not, a, that's not part of our um, letters. Operation goals here. And you see, there's something happening in our day and age. And how can I describe this to you quickly? But there's a book out there called Mega Shift. Mega Shift. And James Roots, R U T Z, is the guy that wrote it. Mega Shift, James Roots. He collected over a few years hundreds of stories of what's happening around the world in miracles. He got some of it from a website called Friday Facts, and then he went to check these things out. And he records dozens after dozens of dozens of times when people literally stepped out of the mold, out of the box, out of the... the this is the way we do thing mentality. And they did things so unusual that brought great victory and sure pleasure to the Lord and so on. I'm just going to tell you two. My first one was down in Knoxville in the, you know, the um, Dollywood area, the um, Pigeon Fork, thank you. This young Christian man, he was sitting on a bench minding his own business. And so a group of people walked by him. And the Lord spoke to this man sitting on the bench, and he told him to call to them. So he did. And he said, is there a Roger among you? And the whole bunch stopped. They turned, and one man stepped forward a bit, and he said, yes, my name is Roger. And the young Christian said, the Lord just spoke to me, and He told me to tell you that the change that you have just made in your ministry pleases the Lord. Now, I think most Christians, I hope I'm wrong, most Christians would say, Oh Lord, I can't do that. What if I'm wrong? I look like an idiot. You understand? But He stepped out of the box. Think of Peter. The first step out of the boat, the first step on the water, that's a scary one. This guy to say, is there Roger in the group? Is a heavy step, but he did it. That's one. I'm going to tell you the second one. This is my favorite one, I think. 
Although every time I read the book, I try to do it three times, I, I generally pick up a few more things. John Paul Jackson is a man from the States that um, uh, is known as a, a good speaker, a, a prophetic speaker, and he was doing a tour in Europe. And he developed a terrible pain. I believe it was in his side, just a, an excruciating pain. So one night he said to the Lord, Lord, either you have to heal me, because if you don't, I'll have to go to the hospital and cancel my tour to find out what's wrong. But it was night, and eventually got to sleep. In the middle of the night, he woke up, and there's a little fellow there. He could tell he was a Mexican, looked Mexican, and the, the little guy said to him, I'm here to heal you. And he prayed for him, and he was healed. Then he went back to sleep. John Paul went back to sleep. The next morning, after he woke up, he went into his inner time to spend time with the Lord, and he started thanking the Lord for the angel that had come to heal him. And God spoke to him and said, that was not an angel. That was a, a little Mexican farmer from an, from an, an insignificant village in Mexico had said to me one day, Father, I just want to do something extraordinary for you. So God picked him up out of Mexico, took him over to where John Paul was in Europe. Uh, we soon he put him back. I haven't seen his picture on a milk bucket or anything. He must be back. Listen, I want to do things like that. I do. You read that book, and something within you, if you love the Lord and fear Him, you would say, I don't care how far outside of the box you have to go, Father. I want to do things for you. Not because I want to be able to write a book about my great adventure, but because I want to bless the one I respect and honor and love more than anything else. So, Lord, here I am. Send me, like Isaiah said. Let's move on. The fear of the Lord is important for the church, for the body of Christ. Acts 9.31, it says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Now let's say, why, why would the church increase it? Well, because... It, it went on in the fear of the Lord. It enjoyed peace. It was built up. And it was walking in the fear of the Lord. And in order to understand that verse properly, let's look at Psalm 19, verse 9. The fear of the Lord is pure, which means there was no gossip going on. There was no backbiting. Nobody was talking behind the pastor's back. There was no jealousy, no criticism, etc., etc. The church was pure. Because of the fear of the Lord, it was pure. People respected God so much, they didn't dare touch God's anointing. They didn't dare speak against each other. Bingo! Church starts to grow, new converts. There weren't a whole bunch of churches to steal people from in those days. Their, their growth was from converts. 
people getting saved, people being baptized, filled with the Spirit. And you see, that's the kind of church I like today, only I can't find one. And if I do, I'd better not go because I might spoil it. But we need to fear the Lord in the church. If the fear of the Lord was understood by every member in any given church body, we would have a different congregation. We also need the fear of the Lord for our family. Psalm 112 and Psalm 128. Those two Psalms talks about the blessing on the family if the father and the mother fear the Lord, especially the father. If they walk in the fear of the Lord. The next one is so holiness can be perfected in us. Second Corinthians 7 1 says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. I believe that verse comes awfully close to saying, without the fear of the Lord, there can be no perfection. Because the fear of the Lord is actually a command in the Old Testament and New Testament. It has to do with the first commandment of Jesus. So how can I ask God to cleanse me if I don't respect Him and honor Him? Then we need to look at the fear of the Lord in relation to whether our prayers are heard. I blessed my Sunday school teacher for many years ago. He'll remember her saying to the class, God will answer every prayer. Every prayer you pray, God will answer. Bless her heart. Jeremiah 26, 19. This is Hezekiah, who is king of Judah. Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And the Lord changed his mind about the misfortune which he had pronounced against them. So, Hezekiah, in a time of judgment against Israel, Hezekiah was a godly man, but the country had not changed from the guy before who was back was Messiah, Manasseh, pardon me, and a few others that didn't do so good. The country had not changed, but Hezekiah tried to, and God changed his mind about the misfortune and, and delayed it a number of years. So God heard his prayer. And what does it say? Did he not fear the Lord? God said, I respect I receive that honor. I hear your prayer. And then Hebrews 5, 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Jesus is in the garden he was saying, Lord, I see the cross. I talked to David about it a thousand years ago. I see how terrible it is. I talked to Isaiah about it 600 years ago. I described to him how I'll be beaten so badly people won't even recognize me. I talked to him about the pain of rejection. I, I know all about it, Father, and I dread the cross. Would you please, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. God said, I hear that. When God hears your prayers, He'll answer your prayers. 
He said, I hear that, Jesus. But then Jesus, in his love for us, said, just a minute, Lord. It's not what I want, it's what you want. You see, if he hadn't said that last part, God would have heard his prayer. Jesus already told his disciples, I can call 10,000 angels and I'm out of here. And you see, the whole plan of salvation that was worked on, I believe, even before Adam, I don't know for sure, but the whole plan of salvation could have been aborted right there and then. But Jesus had not added, it's not what I want, it's what you want, Lord. And you know, in some of our dealings, in life when we're facing things that are not very pleasant, trials, tribulations, whatever. And we can tell God about, oh, how terrible it is. But you need to end, end your prayer with, Lord, it's not what I want, it's what you want. Why would you end it that way? Because I respect and honor Him so much. I know He's right, I'm wrong. So therefore I say, Lord, it's your decision, not my decision. I didn't say Beasley. I didn't say your flesh would agree with your decision. But when I make a decision, I'm going to serve the Lord regardless of the cost. God's kingdom will be glorified. That's how the people in many countries today that are going through such terrible persecution, I'm convinced they have such a reverence and a love for God They'll go through anything and not deny it. If you haven't had some prayers answered, maybe that's getting you to understand. Why should God answer people's prayers if they don't respect them? You know, our, our, our Christian culture has really not done much in the last many years for God's image. Remember as a kid, a song that they sang, Have You Talked to the Man Upstairs? Another one, and turn your radio on, you'll hear God. Well, not necessarily wrong, but you better get a hold of the fact he's much more than just a man upstairs. Yes, he's my father, and I can. There's times I can treat him like my father and love on him and say, "Father, pick me up, hold me on your lap, whatever," just to love on him and let him love on you. But don't forget, he's still king of kings and lord of lords. The fact that my daddy in heaven happens to be king gives me about everything I need. Gives me leadership as a king and gives me intimacy as a father. To say over the last number of years, this whole thing of having him as an intimate father, we've become familiar with him and taken him for granted sometimes. We need to see him. For when I come into his presence, before I crawl up in his lap, I need to get on my face before him because he's still King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Creator of the universe. I respect him and honor him. We need to have the fear of the Lord to give us an understanding of God's government. Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And there's, you know, in 1 Peter and Romans 13, 
again, you have verses say we respect and pray for government and so on. You say, how can I pray for a government? I didn't vote for that particular government. They're doing stupid things. You're not praying for them and respecting them because of what they're doing. You're praying for them and respecting them because God has put them in place right now either to bless us as a nation or to bring judgment on us as a nation, depending where we're going as a people. Now I want to talk about the fear of the Lord in relation to worship. I want you to be ready to do something for me. I want you to be ready to let me kick down the walls of your understanding of worship. I want to kick the boards out of that thing, and I want to get rid of the mindset that we have about worship. And I'm going to do it with the Bible. I'm not doing it because I don't like a certain group. That's not an issue. I'm doing it because what we're doing is not in line with the Scriptures. So therefore, you can either fight against me with your mind, that's the way we've always done it, mind, or you can say, maybe I'm going to learn something here today. So watch what we're doing. Leviticus 9.22, and right over into chapter 10, verse 3. Um, this is a church for something something twisted and went wrong. The Old Testament, of course, we generally don't call the Israelites church, but they were God's people. Alright, so, it says in verse 3, then, oh, let me give you a background to read that first. You see, <laughs> there were these um, uh, two boys, Aaron's son, who were supposed to be the next high priest, but they were sinners. They did some terrible things. So, they're at this place where they're doing a sacrifice. The glory of the Lord shows up, burns the sacrifice out of just because of the, the obedience of Moses and just the fire come down out of heaven and up it goes. But these two boys took the fire senses. We don't know exactly what they were, but they were used in the sacrifices and stuff as a fragrant aroma to the Lord. And they started to abuse that. They didn't have permission. It says later on in the New Testament. They didn't have permission. And so they were mocking it. Fire came out of heaven again and burned them up. So one minute you got the glory of the Lord coming and burning up the sacrifice. And I'm sure everybody was in awe over this. But then all of a sudden these two guys are burned up. And you can understand the church service took a sharp turn left somewhere. And God said to Moses in verse 3, And Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people, I will be honored. So he said, These two guys didn't respect me, they didn't honor me, they didn't treat me as holy. And, he's, and God is saying, When people come before me, he said, I will be. He didn't say, I'd like to be. He didn't say, if you feel like it, do it. He said, I will be. I think so much of our church services today, so much of our gathering together, is simply a program, simply a, uh, an act that we're putting on, or a stage production that we're putting on. And because the people sing 
uh, and the piano plays or the drums play or the, and everybody gets revved up because we have a fast song. We think the Holy Spirit's there. Well, if that's true, then I've been to some baseball games where the Holy Spirit really come down because everybody got all excited about a home run. Is that the Holy Spirit? The answer is no, don't think so. And so, something is in our midst as a, as a body of believers that we assume excitement or something is God. But let's go on. Hebrews 12. This is, I'm sure this passage is referring to those two boys. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The consuming fire thing goes back, I'm sure, to the time of Moses. And he says, what is acceptable in the service? It's reverence and awe. Not for people, not for the program, not for the building, but a reverence and awe for God. So let me stop here for a minute. Tell you the bone I want to pick. We have an old hymn book in my home. I get my, my parents, uh, my mom was, was gone, my dad had been gone a few years before. And in her stuff, I found a hymn book that had been published around the 1900s, so it's really old. Still have it. I cherish it about. But the title is Hymns of Worship. So somewhere, maybe in the 1800s, maybe before that even, for some reason, we've developed the um, habit of, of worshiping the Lord with music, with hymns. And you see, that's been carried down, and in our minds, whenever we're singing, that's the worship. So we have worship services, that is music. We start, you know, maybe there's a few other things, announcements, but the music is supposed to be worship. And where we got that idea, I have no idea. Because I cannot, I'm stretching your box now, I'm kicking the boards up, I cannot find anywhere in Scripture where it says that worship is because we sing or because of instruments. There's nothing that says when you sing or play, it's worship. When people teach on worship, they're almost always talking about music, and when they talk about music and justify from Scripture, they're using praise verses, not worship verses. You can prove me wrong. Let me know. Email me. If you find a verse that says, here's how you worship, get out, the, get out your trumpet. If you can find a verse like that, send it to me. I need, I've looked for it. I can't find it. How did we ever conclude that worship is performed by music? Now, praise is. This is how it started in me. It was in the late 90s. I was in India with another brother who'd been a missionary there for a couple of years. Now he's back pastoring and, 
and he, and he takes mission trips. Uh, I've been in India with him, been in Africa with him. And, um, but when we're in India first time, we're in what was then Bombay, and he just happened to mention, I don't know what we're talking about, this is about sexual. He just happened to mention, you know, here in India there's a saying. They say the, um, the Hindus worship many gods. The Muslims worship one god. The Christians don't worship any god. <clears throat> and then we went on to talk about other stuff. But something within me wouldn't let go of that. And something within me kept bugging me even after I'm home. And one day when we're doing a seminar like this in our at our property back there, when, when one of the um, videos was on, I just kind of wandered over the book rack and there's a little wee book there I'd never noticed before. It's by Derek Prince. It's called Thanksgiving, Praise, Worship. That's a very thin little thing. So I picked it up. I thought I'd read it. And he talks about Thanksgiving. We all know what Thanksgiving is. He talks about praise, which means I'm speaking out, either just speaking or singing um, uh, the greatness of God, His character traits. You're great, you're awesome, you're wonderful, you're faithful. That's what praise is, speaking out God's greatness. Um, King James um, uses ascribe greatness to the Lord. Ascribe means to give back to God's greatness. The purpose is it defeats the enemy because Satan hates praise. Garment of praise for spirit of heaviness. And they're saying, hey, and when we talk about God's greatness, he is shoved back. His kingdom has to move back because of God's greatness. He has no, he has nothing to counteract the praises of the Lord. And then Dr. Prince talked about worship. All the way through Scripture, from the beginning to the end of Revelation, which is still to come. People worship, they knelt, sometimes with their forehead on the ground, sometimes they prostrated themselves, sometimes they bowed from the waist. They were worshiping. And in the book of Revelation, if you think you can find them singing in the book of Revelation, the elders are worshiping, angels are worshiping, none of them are singing. They're declaring the greatness of God out of a holiness, like praise is here. But then there's an area of holiness where, because God is so much in everything, so much greater than we are. Okay, you take the person, though, that can love the very most, the most loving person. God is way out here in His love, way beyond. That's what holiness, set apart as different, set apart as special. And so in worship, if we proclaim anything, it has to do with His holiness. And so I saw in that little book an answer to the thing that had bugged me. Why don't the people in India think we have a God that we worship? We worship nobody. We worship nobody, they say. What a terrible testimony. They have respect for their, their elephant God or their zebra god or whatever, over a million gods they have. You see their idols all on their lawns, in the public squares. 
They worship these things. You know what the Muslims do? The Islam people see them bowing down. All those people know how to worship because they got it, inherited from the Old Testament Arbala because that's the way they worshiped back then before there was, those religions were even thought of and developed. So my concern is this. If I really revere and honor God, shouldn't there be something, after I thanked Him and praised Him, shouldn't there be something where I can literally show I revere and honor you, God? Shouldn't there be something? The people in India must say, yeah, they have a God, but He's not, he's not important enough for them to worship. And so in this burden that I've had to see people worship, I say to the Lord, Lord, I am so sorry that we as a church across this world have never seen you important enough to follow the example of the Scriptures and to worship you the way Abraham worshipped you and to worship you the way that David did and, and on into the book of Revelation, to worship you the same way. We don't do that. Forgive us, Lord. We have treated you as common. We've treated you as not important. Therefore, we have not worshipped. Let me give you an illustration. Let's pretend that coming to your town, Queen Elizabeth, now I hope you think well of her because I don't know who else she is. Queen Elizabeth is coming to your town. Maybe the president of your country or what doesn't know. And so everybody gets out on the street where the, that motorcade is going to come down, and you have your, your little, the kids have their little trumpets and their flags and their pretty little dresses on, and they're all decked up. And when that motorcade comes down, everybody's screaming and hollering. And then when the motorcade's passed and people settle down, a man comes up to you and hands you an, an envelope and you open it for an invitation. The man says, the queen wants, has chosen one person to come and just meet with her in her private coat. So we've chosen you. Fear strikes me. What do I do? What's my hair look like? So you end up going in and I want you to picture this. When you go into the presence of that important person, you jump around blowing horns and waving flags. You're jumping up and down excited. You do something to show respect. You not only show respect to the Father, we worship Him. We don't worship people, but we show respect. God, my arms are too short. So, let me boast about our ministry for a minute. We meet once a week for prayer. We sing a song, three or four songs, and then we worship. We're down on the floor. We all do it. But somebody has to start doing what Scripture says. See, in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 10, in the first part of that chapter, it says twice there, 
Again, at the end of Romans, in the last chapter, it says much the same thing. That the Old Testament is there as an example to us as to how we should live. It's an example. And we've looked at that in relation to worship and said, no, no, we'll do it our way. And so across the world, as far as I know, most evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal churches, we still believe that singing our songs is the worship. And I don't know how God's handling it. Maybe He's handling it okay. But to say, something within me, if I really revere and honor and love Him, something within me should say, I want to do what, what He saw back there hundreds, thousands of years. I want to do the same thing. Because those men, guys like Abraham, Moses, and they, they found favor with God because they knew how to respect and worship Him. Second Chronicles 7.3 When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshipped. And praise the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His mercy endures forever. I chose that one because that's the closest I can come in finding scriptures that worship and praise seem to be done together. But you see, if they were down on the ground with their faces to the ground, it says there in, this, in that verse, their faces right against the, whatever it was, the rocks or whatever pavement. They had to change position to start singing. Have you ever knelt down, put your forehead on the ground, and then sing? <laughs> it's not very easy. Have you ever knelt down, put your head on the ground, and then played your guitar that way? Margaret has never tried to play keyboard that way. Neither has you, Faye, or anybody else who plays piano. Delano, David. You understand, there's, we need to, in our minds, see, there is a difference between praising the Lord with music and all that stuff versus worshiping the Lord. Namely, with no sound whatsoever, nothing coming out of our mouth, just showing respect. Now, the argument is, well, I respect God in my heart. He knows what's in my heart. Try that with Queen Elizabeth when you go under her coat. Stand around and say, Hi, Queenie. I say, Well, you're supposed to respect the Queen. Oh, I respect her in my heart. Not going to work. You want to get kicked out of the British Empire? Do that. And then there's Second Chronicles 29, verse 29. Now the completion of the burnt offerings, the king and all who were present with him bowed down and worshipped. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David the Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with joy and bowed down and worshipped. And then I have a number of Revelation verses. The four and twenty elders in, verse, in chapter 19 of Revelation. The four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped the Lord. Revelation 19.9 At this I fell at his feet to worship him. 
Understand this is still coming. There's Revelation. Revelation 22, 8. I, John, heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw, I fell down to worship. Psalm 95 is one I'm looking for. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Period. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. Period. There's praise so far. There's thanksgiving. Now, come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the God, Lord, our Maker. He's spelling it out very clearly. There's thanksgiving. There's praise. There's worship. That's not confusing. Thanksgiving and praise can be expressed almost the same way with shouting out, speaking out, singing out. But worship takes on a different, a different fold altogether. I believe that I've got a desire to show reverence for God in my heart. And there's honestly a desire there. There's something that would cause me automatically to get down on my knees. That's what I think. You're welcome to think whatever you want. John 4, verse 23. A time is coming. This is Jesus speaking to the woman at the well. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers, maybe you want to underline that, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. He doesn't say they worship with music. Says worship in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Two things out of that: spirit and truth. But what is the truth? The truth is, how did they do it in the old days? Spelled out for you in Scripture. The spirit is. I have a I have a hunger in my heart to show God that I revere and honor. How does the world over anybody that comes before any kind of, of a king or a president or a, a, an important, just especially a, a governmental person, there's just something natural in the whole world that seems to know you bow or you kneel, you do something to show respect. It's just a standard thing. How come we lost it with the most important, the most high being that it can ever be in our lives. How, how come we lost that? The time is, the Father's looking for us to do it. You hear me? The Father's looking for us to do it. So I am not saying that you go back to your church, grab your pastor by the shirt, and say, listen, buddy, you're doing it wrong. I'm not saying that. You don't, you don't have to say anything to your the, the people that lead the music in your church. We call them worship leaders. That term is never used in Scripture. Because we, if, if I want to worship, I don't need a leader. I will do it. Worship leaders never mention. They're called song leaders, leaders of the song. And when I come into the place where Jesus returns, it says in Isaiah 48, and it's recorded by Paul in both Romans and Philippians, he says that before me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear, 
confess that there's no church. Every knee will bow. So that means that when Jesus returns, we better know how to do it. Because if we don't know how to bow before him in reverence, I guess my my imagination tries to get carried away here, but it could be the angels will all be given a baseball bat to hit us in the back of the knees to get us down there. I don't know how he's going to... Like he, he doesn't say, I would like it if they would. He said, every knee will. I just want an angel to go back to God and say, I do not have to hit Howard. He was already down there. So let's get practice done. You don't have to go to your church and try to straighten it out. I'm not asking you to do that. All I'm saying is that you, as an individual, become a worshiper. That's all I'm saying. Become a worshiper. Somebody asked to sign. I think people already know this, you know, especially at a big conference. Every once in a while, during the time of praise, when they're singing, there'll be somebody out in the, in the aisle kneeling or prostrating themselves. Now, I don't know if they're out there because they desperately want to get healed or whether they're out there just to show respect and honor for the God that other people are praising. I don't know. I'm not going to judge them because I don't know. Interesting. Sunday morning at our church. I make it a point when I get up in the morning. That's I worship. One of the first things I do is worship. Just go down for a few minutes before the Lord. But there's been a few times when I was in church service I just had this, I should worship. They're all singing, I should worship. It is hard to kneel down. Because the people around me, I assume, I fear of man, I guess, or Howard's just acting spiritual. But I get over it. Do it anyway. I don't do it every Sunday because I've worshipped in the morning. But I ask myself, why was it hard to do that? Promises from God if we walk in the fear of the Lord. He promised us knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Now this alone, I, you know, an average preacher could spend a couple of hours on this because the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians, like, there's just so much about God's wisdom out of His kingdom versus the wisdom of man. So out of God's kingdom because knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the holy is understanding. Proverbs 4.7, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and we know we do it with the fear of the Lord. Job 28.28, and unto man he said, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, to depart from evil is understanding. And I mentioned 1 Corinthians 1, man's wisdom versus God's wisdom. You can read that passage. The main part of it is verses 18 to 29. But I'm more interested right now. I know what the world's wisdom has done for us. The world's wisdom has said it's okay to have sex with anybody that will consent to it. And consequently, we have Somebody told me in one of our seminars, 32 different kinds of venereal diseases. I don't know if age is included in that or not. It might be. 
but you see millions of people have died from those diseases. Millions of people have, have, have not been able to conceive and give birth to a child. And many, many other um, side effects from the drugs that it takes to deal with those diseases. On and on and on. You see, that's man's wisdom. You can have sex with anybody as long as you consent. Do you know what God's wisdom was? God's wisdom was simply, no sex before marriage. In your marriage, be faithful. That was it. If we had done that, we would have no venereal disease. We probably would have no unwanted children. Are you following me? But we are so convinced we're right, the world's way is right, God's way is wrong. Let's take those those standards out of our schools. Little kids should just know by, by accident, I guess, what is right and wrong. What's wrong with telling our children in the school it's wrong to steal? It's wrong to um, put somebody down. It's wrong to be jealous. What's wrong with... But well, we take them out so we have more, more crime today from people that have grown up in the environment. Jesus, if we listen to him, we have... A lot less social problems, many almost none. You see, that's man's wisdom, God's wisdom. I want God's wisdom, the fear of the Lord. Remember at the very beginning, the fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. For I not only have it, but it's the source of salvation, a source of wisdom, and a source of knowledge. Now, the wisdom of God is not directly related to your IQ. Not related. Okay? The wisdom of God is a result of you saying, I revere and honor you, God. I want to walk that way the rest of my life. Malachi 3, verse 16 and 17. Here's some... Here's another promise that we walk in the fruit. By the way, I haven't listed a guy named John Bevere, who many of you have heard of, has a book on the fear of the Lord. I'm not copying his book. If you bought his book, you would have a totally different message. You use a lot of the same verses, of course. I have not copied. I recommend his book. But you see, in this whole thing of the promises from God, in one of his chapters, he lifts. The fear of the Lord, you'll have long life. The fear of the Lord, the Lord will prosper you. The fear of the Lord, there'll be peace in life. He just lists after list after list of the promises. I haven't got time to go into all that. You get a concordance, you look them up. Malachi 3. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And the Lord gave attention and heard it. Remember, it's people that feared the Lord. God gave attention and heard it. And it says, A book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord. Oh, I love it. A book of remembrance was written especially for people who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. What up? Oh, God, that blesses me. If I walk in the fear of the Lord, if I know the reverend, you, you live in Lord, you are going to say out of your mouth, Howard, you belong to me. On the day that I prepare my own possession 
and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. What more? Do you want a promise like that? That God would call you His, and in time of trouble, He will spare you? I didn't say you wouldn't go through troubles. I just, you see, God doesn't have a back door where we can escape. He's there to go with us through and spare us as He goes with us. They go a walk through the valley of the shadow of death. David knew. Trouble is part of our refining process and character. We know that. Malachi 4, the next chapter. But for you who fear my name, you ready? If you walk in the fear of the Lord, the sun of righteousness will shine with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Stop there. I got I was raised in a farm. Some of you guys are. You have calves in a pen for a, for a few weeks because it's stormy outside. You let them out. You see nothing but heels and tails. <laughs> they are so... He says... No, I'm just saying... If you fear the Lord, you'll go forth and skip like calves in the star. You will tread down the wicked. He's talking about the demonic realm there. He's not talking about people. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I'm preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Isn't that a prophetic word of Jesus that, that he will crush the serpent's head and those that follow him will also have that authority? I'm telling you about the fear of the Lord here. Everything within you says, yes, I want it. I want to get there. I'm going to tell you how. Okay, let's talk about the negative side. I'm sorry to listen with This isn't negative. I mean, the government says to you, you had better not drink while you're driving or you can kill yourself or somebody else. Is that negative? No, it helps me understand. Don't drink and watch out for people that do. All right? So this is not negative unless you don't want to hear the truth. Here's the consequences of not having the fear of the Lord. Romans 1, verse 21. When we fail to respect and honor God, we strip Him, at least in our thinking, of value. We are His children, and when we dishonor Him, we are knowingly reflecting the same attitude towards ourselves, resulting in low self-image, low self-esteem, and self-hatred. I'm saying that because the, the, the teaching I do on understanding our value, we establish that my, my value is based on God, my Father. But if I just see, oh, he's the man next door, well, what value is that guy? And so if my value is based on somebody next door, my value plunges with his value. So we need to understand I'm going to respect and honor him as the high and mighty one. Proverbs 128. Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. I'm talking about the consequences of not fearing. He says, they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Why? Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. When I go through that again, you'll call, he won't answer. You'll seek for him, he won't let you find him. 
divine, was a haven the wisdom of God, the head of the knowledge, and made a choice not to see him as the high and lofty one that we revere. Malachi 3, verse 5. He says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against you. Those who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And then in Jeremiah 8, verses 8 and 9, there's a compromise here. How can you say, We are wise, and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men are put to shame. They are dismayed and caught being told they have rejected the word of the Lord. What kind of wisdom do they have? Let me put that into our senses. For many years now, the past couple of centuries, for at least a year, different churches, different denominations, have changed the Word of God to suit what they wanted to say. And God speaks here about the lying pen of the scribes. They may not have changed the actual text, although some of them have. Some of your cults have changed the Bible, said this is the true one. But he says, the lying pen of the scribes has made the, the Word of God, made the whole thing of being a Christian into a lie. And God says, I'm going to put the wise men to shame. They've rejected the Word of God. They don't have wisdom. I was meditating on this one day. And this is what I realized. There are some churches where the, the signs and wonders of the Holy Spirit are still there. There's people being saved, people being healed, delivered, and so on. There are some. But there's many where there's no evidence of the presence of God. They may pretend there is. They may have happy music to impress the people that there is. But generally, somebody in leadership, if the music is fast or people clap a lot, they'll get up and say, Oh, the presence of the Lord is here. Holy Spirit is here. This is my conclusion. If the Holy Spirit shows up in a church service, you won't have to be told. You won't have to be told. I've, I've experienced that. Nobody had to tell me. Now, what about the churches where that never happens, where he shows up? Where the, maybe the leadership tries to... Uh, I'm convinced you that he's here. But you go home and say, how come I missed it? You know, I'll tell you why. Because Jesus said, if you speak my word, I will confirm it with signs and wonders. That was the promise. Well, if we're speaking the word that we have manufactured ourselves to suit our doctrine, suit my thinking, I still expect signs and wonders, but they don't, so... We hope for next Sunday, or we pretend they are there. And here's what the Lord showed me. If I change the Word of God to suit my church or my thinking, if I change it, it becomes my Word. It's not God's Word, it's my Word. Jesus never said He confirmed my Word. 
He said he confirmed his word. That's why we need to leave it alone. What I read in that Bible, I need to accept it. I may not always understand it, but I accept it as the truth, and I'm going to stick to it, and I'm not going to change it. Now, whenever churches as a whole, the congregation, especially the leaders, start saying, we've got to go through that thing, we've got to find out what's wrong here, because there are, literally are no signs and wonders, we're tired of pretending there is, and get back to the Word of God and start analyzing things. One example that I gave the other day is water baptism. We have to get back and say, this is what it really is, this is what God's Word says it is. Then maybe God will start confirming His Word in that congregation. If it's not His Word, don't expect anything. It may sound like His Word, but we've changed it to ours. Okay, how do we get to fear the Lord? First of all, we've already read most of this verse. I'm just going to give you a wee bit. The first thing is Proverbs 1.29. I believe this is the first step. They did not choose to fear the Lord. So, what I need to take from that is the fear, if I want to walk in the fear of the Lord, I need to make a choice that I want it. Lord, I want, I want to revere you and honor you. And you can also say, from now on, I choose. At some time in my bedroom or in my office, and nobody has to be watching, I'm not proving anything to anybody, I'm going to get down and for a for maybe 30 seconds or a minute or a minute and a half, it doesn't matter. I'm going to worship you. He's looking for you to do that. He told the woman at the well, I am seeking. My father is seeking. Isn't that interesting? Such an awesome God. And he has to look for people that are worshiping him. So, now the rest of these steps I don't think it matters too much which order you have them in. But I believe making a choice has to be first. So be part by submitting to the teaching of our leaders. Second Chronicles 26.5. This is King Uzziah. It says, He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who was the high priest, who instructed him in the fear of the Lord. So, I'm giving you instruction right now about the fear of the Lord. If you read John Bevere's book on the fear of the Lord, you're getting instruction. If you were to read a third book, it's called Intimacy with the Father, but it's by Joy Dawson from Youth of the Mission. She was the first one I heard teaching on it, and when she was done teaching, she took about three days. I literally, I'm not exaggerating, I literally felt, I don't want to go by feelings, but I literally felt something had shifted in me. It's almost as if I was looking for that thing and I found it and something shifted. So her book as well, about intimacy with the Father, the subtitle is Understanding the Fear of the Lord. It's also excellent. Be taught by teachers. And then also, consistently studying God's Word. Deuteronomy 31, verse 11. When all Israel... Let me do better. When all the church comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place He will choose, you shall read this law before them in their hearing. Assemble the people. Yeah, you have to remember they only had one scroll per, per tabernacle. So that is, you have Bibles at home. You can do this at home too. 
assemble the people, men, women, but send the children downstairs in the basement. Is that what it says? <laughs> assemble the people, men, women, and children, and the aliens, that means your neighbor who isn't a Christian, in your town, living in your town, so that they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of this law. What's the key? It's the Bible. To learn from the Scripture. Then it says in verse 13, their children, in other words, your grandchildren, I assume that's what it means, who do not know this law, must hear it and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. So I have to take that now and put it into our age and our culture. Mom and Dad, I, met, I bless God for my mom and dad. There was Sunday afternoons to sit down and read the Gospels to us and read the Old Testament history of the Jews. Do you know what happened to me when they were reading the history of the Jews through those books like Leviticus, Numbers? I learned something. Yes, they were kind of boring. And so much of the law does doesn't apply to us, but I, I learned something. I learned that when Israel obeyed the Lord, He blessed them. When they disobeyed the Lord, He allowed the enemy to overrun them and take them captive. But when they'd repent, He would bring them back. I learned that. And when I was a little fella, I knew that if I've obeyed the Lord, it would go well with me. If I didn't, I was going to face trouble. So I tried to live a Christian life and yet not be a Christian. Doesn't work, thank God, because it eventually brought me to the place. God, I give up. I'm t I don't want to go to church anymore because I'm pretending. I feel like a hypocrite, and all that junk. Most of you didn't screw it. I don't have to explain it. Psalm 86 says, "Teach me your way, O Lord, and I'll walk in your path, that I may fear your name." So, God wants to teach us. He wants to use His Word. He wants to use other teachers. He wants you to make a choice. Let's go on. Have an undivided heart. Psalm 86, the second half of verse 11. This was, this was the prayer of the psalmist. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Jesus said the same thing when he says, Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. An undivided heart is when I, I, love, the, I love my God, I love my Father, and there's nothing else that interferes with that love. The car I just saw, the, the Mercedes-Benz little sports car convertible that just drove by, I love God more than that car. I liked convertibles when I was young. I thought women would really get off on them. I was disappointed that the bank gained all the interest. But, you know, just... I don't want to tell you how stupid I was when I was a teenager. You might believe me. So, give me an undivided heart, Lord, that I may fear you. You're number one. I, I've told you before, consistently, day after day if you have to, tell God, you're number one in my life. I, love, I want to love you more than anything else. Consistently, do it. You brush your teeth every day, I hope. You don't, your friends wish you would. 
but as we do things consistently every day, start to worship, and you can, while you're down there, you can say, God, I love you more than anything else, and uh, you can talk while you're worshiping. If you want to sing when you're worshiping, I don't care, but get down there. Show the Lord that you are bowing in His presence. Oh, by faith in God's promises. How do we get the fear of the Lord? By faith in His promises. Jeremiah 32, verse 39 and 40. Now, this is a promise from God. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. And I will inspire them to fear me that they never, never turn away from me. Now, that's God's promise. But the promise broke down when the children of Israel were not obedient to Him. God's promises are conditioned on our obedience. And, and then here's another one. Become desperate. In Proverbs 2, verses 1 and 5, it, it kind of summarizes everything that we've spoken of before, but we have to look at this. It's a beautiful passage. Listen, uh, the Lord is saying, my son, he could be saying, my daughter, too, if you girls. Um, I don't want you to be offended. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, do you hear all that? Turning your ear to wisdom, applying your heart to understanding. If you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, I want to stop there for a minute. It doesn't say, if you will think for insight. If you will think for understanding. When I taught this, this in the Byland Basin Barbados, I taught this. Do you know what the students did when they're doing their homework? They come out in the parking lot and they start screaming out to God. God, I want insight. I want understanding. I want the fear of the Lord. They're screaming. Listen, you get goosebumps when people do that. When you've taught something and they do it. <laughs> Verse 4, if you look for it, through silver and search for this for hidden treasure. i got to stop there, too. If you were to buy an older home, and after you've had it for a while, somebody says to you, you know, back a couple of owners ago, there's an old fellow that lived there. We think he was really wealthy, but he didn't trust the banks, And but we know he's, he's well off. We think he hid the money in the house. You would go home, and in half an hour, that place, <laughs> you got the picture, honey. Let me read that verse 4 again. If you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, this whole thing of the fear of the Lord, to get it means you work at it. You're reading the Bible. You're getting teaching. You're asking the Lord for it. You're depending on His promise to give it to you as He, as he did there just above that. Let me read that whole passage again. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, that has to do with obedience, 
turn your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding. If you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Point out this to you. Three times he uses the word understanding. Get understanding. Understand that we cannot get through life and successfully serve the Lord without the fear of the Lord. Have understanding of what it means. Understanding how to, how to demonstrate that great awe and respect and worship. Understand these things, people. Ask the Lord. Lord, give me understanding. One of, the, one of the guys in the old text said, I obeyed the Lord, then I understood. I obeyed, then I understood. I've given you stuff to do, you obey, someday God will give you understanding. Proverbs 4 7, wisdom is supreme. Where do we get wisdom from? From Jesus, from the Father. Where do we get it? From the Father. How do we get it? The fear of the Lord. Wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom. Don't cost all you have. Get understanding. The last part. Don't give up. Matthew 7, 7 says, Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Luke 18, the persistent widow. She went to the judge to get justice. He threw her out. She went back the next day. He threw her out. She went back the next day. He threw her out. She kept doing that. He kept throwing her out. Finally, he said, I'm going to give this woman what she wants because she's wearing me out. I love that. Time we wear out the gloom. Make them tired. Be persistent. He said, I'm going to give her what she wants. Then there's Luke 11, the persistent neighbor. 11 o'clock at night. He's in bed with his family's all bedded down. Somebody knocks on the door. He looks out the window down at the door and says, what do you want? He said, Come to visit. So they come in. <clears throat> then the guy has to go next door because he has no bread to give him. Knocks on the door. The guy looks at him and says, What do you want? I have a visitor. I have no bread. Can I get a loan? No, go away. We're in bed. Leave us here. Knock, knock, knock. What do you want? I need a loaf of bread. He says, no, go away. Knock, knock, knock. What do you want? want some bread. Jesus said, <clears throat> the guy came, he opened the door and gave him a loaf of bread and he said, I'm not giving this to you because you're my neighbor. I'm giving this to you because you're so persistent. And Jesus said, I want you to be persistent both with this man and with the widow. He's implying, I want Christians to be persistent. And I'm saying to you now, I want you to start pursuing the fear of the Lord for your benefit. It's for your benefit, your family, your wisdom, your understanding, your knowledge, start to pursue it. Don't give up. Don't forget about it 15 minutes after I'm done talking. Start to pursue it. When I heard this teaching from Joy Dawson, it was at a conference in Hawaii. She said, be persistent. Keep asking. You have to work at it. And I made a decision I was going to do that. It was one of the best decisions I've made. Not the only good one, but one of the best. And I began to, I'm studying it, 
I brought a set of her tapes home. Uh, the first half was okay, but a 30 minute, all the rest were blank. Now I'll have to send them back to him. Get them to, and the Lord impressed on me. You study, you find out. And I'm glad because that way I don't copy what she said when I'm teaching. And you see, over the years, whenever I was reading the Bible, I would come across the fear of the Lord. And in my notebook, I started to write every verse down. I'd do with the fear of the Lord. Asking God for it. Never giving up. It's not. I remember about three or four years later, I tried preaching on it one Friday night in our meeting. And I wasn't ready to preach on it. It fell on the floor in front of me. If you're a preacher or a teacher, you know what that's like. And so I kept pursuing it. And that must have been, I'm guessing, about 15 years after I heard that teaching, God finally released me to start preaching it. Listen. Good preaching comes out of experience and the Word of God. It does. Now, I don't know how good I've been, but I know the Word of God is dependable and sure. So I've given you a whole bunch of scriptures here. John Bevere's book's got a whole bunch more. Joy Dawson's got some others. If you make up your mind, I'm going to know how to walk in the fear of the Lord. You notice the last line there of Proverbs 2? You understand the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord isn't some kind of a commodity you go to the store and buy in a box. The fear of the Lord is understanding how to live a life that demonstrates fear of the Lord, demonstrates to Him, shows our friends, but that's least important, then demonstrates it to Him. Father, first of all, I am so thankful for what you've done with this message in my life. Thank you for that message by Joy Dawson. I thank you that she didn't apologize for the things she said because she said some hard things. I thank you, Lord God, that in some way you got a hold of my heart. I credit you with the Lord. You changed something in me, and I thank you for that. But now I'm asking you to do it in these people, everyone who hears this message, that, they, that you would get a hold of something in their hearts that, that a year from now, their life would be totally different because they understand and walk out the fear of the Lord. So, Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to me, Lord. It's for their benefit I'm asking. It's for their future that I'm talking about. It's for their family that, that is um, important and their grandchildren that they would understand and walk in the fear of the Lord the rest of the days of the life. You promised you'd look after them. Bring them through trials. Bring them through financial difficulties. Straighten things out in their life. And bring them into a place where you, you will write their name in a book of remembrance and you will say, that person is mine. I thank you, my God, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please visit our website at jwmi.ca to find out about more information of our ministry.